catalog and cocktails. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Here's your hosts, Juan Cicada and Tim Gasper. Hello, everyone. Welcome. It is Wednesday, and it's time for Catalog and Cocktails, your honest, no BS, non-salesy conversation about enterprise data management with tasty beverages in hand. Once again, live from Data.WorldHQ. Um, I'm Tim Gasper, a longtime data nerd and product guy at Data.World, joined by Juan. And I'm Juan Cicada, principal scientist here at Data.World, and it is, as always, a pleasure to spend Wednesday afternoon, middle of the week, end of the day, to go chat about data. And it is an interesting day today because it is, first of all, episode 50. It is our season finale, and uh, it's kind of a bittersweet that we're uh, taking a quick pause uh, about uh, for cataloging cocktails, yeah. but we'll, we'll definitely be back because there's just so much stuff we want to go. Little little summer break here, but we've got exciting things planned for season two. So don't expect that we're going to be gone for long. No, no, no. So, um, what are we drinking? What are we toasting for? Well, first of all, <laughs> to fifty episodes. Cheers, fifty Cheers. episodes, fifty episodes. Um, and you have some special things going on, right? Well, yeah, actually, I'm cheering because it is. Uh, Today, tomorrow is my two-year anniversary here at Data.World, and I joined when Data.World uh, acquired my previous company, uh, Capcenta, and we've been bringing in all this knowledge graph technology, and now it's just super exciting to go see how we are just taking off the rest of the world. So it's been two years. I can't believe, uh, well, the last year we've been at home, and now finally, yeah. little by little, getting back together, but this is su super cool. So cheers, cheers for 50 episodes of Calvin Cocktails. and. Uh, what started off as sort of a pandemic, um, uh, a pandemic uh, exercise here in a different medium, a different approach has really turned into something. So appreciate you all for being our listeners and being a part of this. And, and yeah, we got an drinking. interesting cocktail today, right? So we have our, our, our now that we're coming back to our office, we have our master uh, mixologist. Yeah, Dave uh, Griffith. Dave Griffith. And he made us a liquidity event, uh, which is, remember? Uh, gin. <laughs> Elderflower, cherry liqueur, and lime. Delicious. So cheers to, to, to Dave. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Dave. So we thought, well, I need a sip of this, <laughs> that we have, so we, at the beginning of the year, we decided to kind of bring on guests. So the kind of the first part of the season, it was just you and me. We had a couple of guests. Mm -hmm. And then we said, hey, how about we bring in more people just to have so many different conversations? And I think it's just been a huge boom. So what we've done is that we've, summarized and kind of categorized the different topics uh, the last, I think, at least 20 plus episodes right. um, that we've just been discussing stuff. And we just want to give a summary kind of of, of all our of our takeaways and then give the takeaways of the takeaways of the takeaways of the last. This is the <laughs> recap episode with color commentary. It's like the sport edition of what's happened over the last, I don't know, how many episodes? A lot. 30 or so? Probably. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So the way we did this is that we started to guess how we define this, right? By people, processes, and technologies. Well, it was either that or don't boil the ocean, so. And, then, and don't boil the ocean shows up in every one, I okay, think. Okay, okay, that's a right? theme. <laughs> it's a theme. So, all right, so let's talk about people first. And I think one of the first things that we kind of to kind of tell this story is, we're talking about people, we're talking about team. And the question is, how do you start a team? So um, episode 41 was with Patrick Berry about building great data teams. And on this episode, it was, it was great because Patrick was actually just starting 
a new job and he was starting a new team, uh, starting a new data team. So we got into this, this was like perfect timing for him. And first things they started out with is, hey, let's understand the lay of the land. Let's get to know people. Let's get to understand the existing workflows and don't start by kicking down doors and criticizing and bringing in your own way. Like it was really important to understand how things are set. So I think that's really kind of, if you're starting a team from scratch in a way, that's, you need to understand the lay of the land. Right, exactly. And, you know, I think, I think that was a really great session because we got a really nice sort of overview of sort of the different personas, the different folks that are involved and really thinking about like, how do you create success, right? And I think one of my favorite lines that came out of that was, uh, uh, don't be an asshole, right? <laughs> uh, you know, create a safe environment, attitude is infectious. So like you, you, you wanna be somewhere where you feel like everyone's got each, other, uh, each other's backs. And, uh, and that really applies to the data, the data team as well. And, and what was, what's also important there is that you want to be able to understand the needs of your consumers, of your clients, of your data, right? So who are those clients? Who are those consumers, right? And what do they actually need? So that's always important to, when we talk about, we got to define success, but remember that success means is tightly connected to who's actually consuming the data. Who are, who are those folks that, that, and what do they need? And also it's important to be able to understand the skill sets that we have in-house, right? And which ones do we need to go to bring in uh, externally? And in addition to that, it's the technology stack. And this was so, this was a very interesting aspect I never thought about is that depending on which domain you are, there's different type of technology stacks that you may want. So for example, uh, marketing, if you're in marketing, hey, people need to know the different technologies like uh, Google Analytics, for example, right? Or LinkedIn ads and so forth, right? So who are the people who have these expertise in these types of tech stacks or these different uh, applications within your domain? That's really, really important. Uh, and I think this is something that mm -hmm. understanding the domain and who's involved in the technology there is, is, is crucial. Yeah, sometimes we're tempted to, you know, when we join an organization, like, you know, you're going into a management or a leadership position, right? Or maybe you're a member on a team and y'all are just trying to grow your team to like be like thinking more from a technology perspective, right? Like, oh, like we need Python people or we need this kind of people versus thinking about like, well, what skills do we have? Right. And, and what are the people that we have here? And, and do we have experts in certain areas that then can be mentors and be coaches to the people that we hire? Right. So it's, it's good to think about it from a people first perspective, not just a technology first perspective. And there's a lot to balance. So you have to balance mm -hmm. the people, balance the skill sets, balance the tools, balance your budget. Right. So, for example, you may start with a lot of the free tools. And then revenue increases, then you can be able to go upgrade. And I think one of the things there is that success needs to be tied to how you're growing revenue and how you're lowering costs. And I think at the end of the day, this is this is kind of the takeaway. One of the big takeaways I've had over our, all our conversations is the bottom line success of any data kind of project is how is this making us money for the company, how is this saving us money? We really need to go tie those things together. So when you're starting with your team, that's the stuff we want to go have. Think right. about that. So the next episode was also related to people, also about sort of teams and specifically how you scale, how you grow. And that was with Mitesh Karyas, the chief data officer of the Zebra. And uh, the title of that was Data Organization, Reap What, we, what You Sow, because based on how you grow your organization, um, that's going to have big, big effects. Um, and, I, and I'll start off with the first point, which is that what was interesting is that he really came out with the perspective that silos aren't bad, right? It's not that like, uh, you know, silos always bad, always need to break the silos. The reason why they're created is for efficiency, 
right? When you create a silo, you're creating a group of expertise combined with technology, combined with fast sort of path towards a certain goal. Where silos become a problem is when you can't scale beyond them and when information isn't being passed between them. And I, this episode, remember, we this was a live brainstorming session because it was like, mm -hmm. how do you start growing your team? And when do you decent, you start centralized? When do you decentralize or do you go decentralization? Yeah, when do you make those moves? And this, right? this, so this is a fast, this is a fascinating discussion here. Um, and I think one of the things that we have is when do you start to decentralize is well, one is if you have a centralized team that doesn't fully understand the business anymore, at that point, you probably need to go decentralize and kind of go create what we were talking about pods. That was one thing. Another way to kind of attest there is check how long it takes to hire someone and for them to get trained. Every time it gets longer and longer, then your group is too big. You probably need to start decentralizing and breaking that. I thought that was a really, really interesting uh, insight over there. Yeah. And, and part of that is because the analogy we were doing is with software is that if you have a, it's like if you have a big monolithic code base, you need to start modularizing that. Same thing within your data organization, your data teams, right? If you just have one gigantic team that does everything, it's just like you're not want to have one gigantic monolithic code base. You need to start modularizing that. So, and, and it's, you could probably apply some of that same kind of uh, techniques to decide when you're going to modularize. Mm -hmm. And in addition to that, um, uh, a concept that's actually come up a few times in our episodes, but I think was especially accentuated with the the, the one with Mitesh was around this idea of efficiency versus resiliency and sort of an efficient system, you know, we, you know, oftentimes you associate that with like agile and like, Hey, let's get from A to B as fast as possible and iterate, 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 um, as one sort of model. And another model is more like resilient systems. Like when, when, when somebody leaves the company, can we be resilient to that? When a particular technology becomes extinct or defunct, can we be resilient to that? Um, as we scale, can we be resilient to the issues of, uh, that come with scaling? Um, and we explored a lot of the ideas around, okay, how do we balance that, right? Maybe when you're a smaller company, you start with more of a focus on efficiency, but then you start to hit some walls and you're scaling and you're like, okay, now we need to, we need to scale out. We need more data teams. We need more pods. We need to push things to the, to the business or vice versa. Right. And, I, and one of the things I'm, I'm a big aviation geek and, mm -hmm. I, and I loved how we were able to do this analogy with legacy airlines versus like Southwest. Right. So Southwest is an airline that they're just uh, completely decentralized. They go from point to point while the legacy carriers, right, they have their hubs and they have their spokes. And that's an interesting approach, kind of an interesting analogy is like if you start off being a completely decentralized organization, it's like you have, well, you're like Southwest, everybody go talks to everybody. But what's interesting is that there is still some stuff that is let's call it centralized or more standardized. Mm -hmm. So going back to the Southwest analogy is they only fly 737s. Right. That's how they're standardizing it. So it's like, look, we all do different things. Every every team uh, is decentralized, but we have we're standardizing on the on the tools, on the processes that we have, right? Or you can start thinking about having a core team, right? And and this is kind of your hub, and you can have different pods that you're supposed to talk to your core team, and then you decide what's core, and then what your your your, your each pod, which is probably based on every domain, what they're doing, and you're gonna have data product managers who are gonna be li liaisons between the different teams. So th there is just, there is no right or wrong way of doing this. Right. It, th I think that's the point is, and I think a lot will, that another takeaway I'm having is it depends on the culture of your organization. If you're more decentralized organization, or if you're more controlling organization, you want to have a, you want to figure out what is the balance that works best for you. And in addition to that is you should define, understand what that is for your organization and define a template 
because you need to be able to grow your organization based on that template. So are you a very centralized? Are you all, all decentralized? What is that hub and spoke type of model you want to have? Figure that out, make that template so you know, oh, look, we need to just go create new hubs uh, or we create another hub or another spoke and so forth. Yeah. And we actually kind of ended that conversation with uh, sort of uh, an interesting possibility for the future and then an interesting quantitative insight. So the possibility for the future was as we talked about like the scaling process going from sort of, you know, starting with centralized and then kind of building out your hubs and expanding that there's kind of a roadmap there. And it would almost be very interesting to visualize, hey, when do you hit those tipping points when you kind of need to move to the next scale factor? And then the interesting quantitative thing, and I, I love like when numbers get involved in things, like I'm a big fan of the Pareto principle, you know, 80-20 rule, mm -hmm. right? Is uh, uh, Mitesh talked about threes and tens and that your company as you're growing like three people, then 10 people, 30 people, then a hundred people that like threes and tens kind of become these points where systems start falling apart, processes start falling apart and you need to refactor. That that was an amazing insight I have. And I think that's something I will never forget from now on, the mm. threes and tens. Now, now we've, when your organization starts getting bigger, you want to have a chief data officer. And our episode with Mohammed Osser, the chief data officer of McKenzie, was phenomenal. And I think it's one of the most listened, uh, most played episodes. And I love his definition. A, a chief data officer is a data entrepreneur. Very simple. Your honest, no BS answer right there. And there's these three things you can decide what type of chief data officer you're going to be. You're one who's focused on innovation. You want to go do new things with data. Or you're one focused more on the architecture. You're bringing in, making sure you're defining in the right architecture and bringing the right tools. Or you're more about data enablement. Your goal is to go build culture within your data, within your organization to go build, uh, bring in more data. So I think that those are the three types of CDOs that you are. But at the end of the day, you are a data entrepreneur. Right. And, and it seems like uh, one of the biggest areas that Muhammad focused on was thinking about who are the consumers of the data, who are the folks that really are going to benefit from data in your organization, and take a very, both a use case and a persona-based approach to think about who are these consumers, what do they really need to do with that data, and how do we build momentum in the entire organization, visibility and momentum, so that we're, we're creating this sort of motion towards empowering and enabling these different personas through culture, through platforms, through technologies, uh, and so on and so forth. And part of that, part of building that data culture, what is key is building relationships. So if you're realizing who are the teams, who are the people who are actually looking for data, asking questions like, go meet them. Right. They're the ones who are excited about data. They're the ones who are going to be kind of the that head of community within your organization. At the end of the day, the CDO is just one person. They have to identify those data champions across the organization. And they're the first ones to build the map of those data experts. Right. At the end of the day, it's like, you know, you don't come to me for the data. It's like, I know who are the right people. We're going to set up the right kind of pods in a way of about the data, about data within do, their domain. Yeah. So I think the, that, the, that was crucial. The CDO is like the guy at the top of the pyramid of the multi, multi-level marketing, mm -hmm. you know, where he has to get everybody to find their friends and, and get their friends to find their friends. And in the end, you know, everybody benefits. So that's a, it's like that, but for data. So let, let's sit on that one for a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and Mohammed is a person who's, who, who gets, has a lot of visibility within uh, all types of companies and, uh, and everything that's going out there. So I really appreciate his insight of what's next. And there are three aspects. One is 
data as a product and knowledge graphs. Um, I think that was one of his things out there. What's next is that we're going to start treating data as a product. And the way to go do that is using knowledge graphs, which we're going to talk about that in a sec. Second is external data, right? We're seeing, we're going to, we already know that there's so much data out there that we're going to start seeing these roles such as data scouters, data hunters, and they're the ones going to be helping finding data, but they're going to be tied directly to the business to help them solve problems. And third, something I really loved here was humanizing data. What is the user experience of data? And I think it goes connected back to what is a data product is we need to make sure that we're creating data that other people can go use and they're going to enjoy. I mean, it's a Marie, who's the, yeah. let's be the Maria Kondo of data, right? Does this data bring me joy? Right. Does it spark joy? Um, there we go. It's a spark, spark joy. joy. And you know, the one thing I, I, that this reminds me of is that one of the themes that we've been noticing across this entire, you know, set of episodes are these parallels, these analogies of software and what has worked and been effective in the software world, sort of shifting to agile, you know, user experience paradigms and things like that, and how those things have then come to the data world and had positive impacts there. Data ops is another thing, right? We're gonna talk more about that in a, in a few minutes. Um, but this idea of humanizing data, the UX of data, you know, there's so much that's been thought of around UX for software and like having good design par uh, paradigms there, but not as much on the data side. And so there's so much opportunity there. This is a huge opportunity and we're not, and, and I think the way we actually take advantage of this opportunity is bringing people outside of the, the technical sphere. Right? I think that's a really important thing is basically who are your consumers of data? Who are the subject matter experts who are actually need that data to go solve a problem, to go make money and save money. I think that's a huge opportunity that we're seeing right there. Right. Now, kind of to wrap up the, 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 the people aspect, we also had a topic about education. We had Professor George Fletcher from the Technical University of Eindhoven talking about what's going on in data science universities. And I think uh, one of the, one of the, the, the ways he, we, we fr he framed it is, look, computer science is the study of, of computation, right? The study of algorithms, of methods, of processing things. Well, data science is really, the, the object of study is data. I think that's that separation that we're, right now we're seeing data science kind of being either in, in more in the statistics side, we're seeing it more in, in multidisciplinary, but it will eventually become its own kind of degree in a way because your object of study there is data. And I think that's something that, that is really important for us to think about. It's not just about the methods that we're doing, it's that we really study this thing called data. I thought that was very interesting. And, and there was an analogy that he kind of put together. Right? It was like computer science is to algorithms as data science is to data. And the idea that, you know, as data becomes more of this core object, as you're kind of noting, Juan, that that, that, that is, that is going to start to become a more of a first class citizen, along with the algorithms in terms of the way that the education system is put together. And, you know, are they going to call it data science? Is it going to be called something else? I know, obviously, we're very interested in this idea of knowledge science that you talk a lot about, mm -hmm. right? Um, but, uh, but that is going to continue to rise up and universities, boot camps, all sorts of different organizations are going to continue to really proliferate and bring value to data in this way. And I think one of the things that we're going to see more in data science kind of curriculums is bringing in more of a kind of the philosophy of the mind, understanding different mental frameworks, uh, sociology, anthropology, because these are the types of, of basically techniques and, under, uh, and ways to go talk to other people that are needed. And I think this is also going to give this connection to this area, which we're calling knowledge science, knowledge engineering. So there's a lot of stuff that's going to be changing here in the, in the next five, right. five to 10 years for sure. So it's going to be really exciting to see 
what is the next career path around here? And, and for folks very interested in the technology around data and, and folks listening to this who uh, maybe are, are uh, continuing to deepen their expertise around data, um, you know, one of the things that I think George kind of inspired through his talk was consider learning more about sociology or anthropology or some of their philosophy, these other fields where they approach this like a framework, yeah. right? And think and give you a toolkit to understand people and why they operate the way they do, because ultimately getting value from data is an exercise in understanding what people need and how they operate. So let's talk about processes. And there's, I think if we're gonna talk about processes, how do we get to start here? And we had this episode with Ashley Faith, who's from EBSCO. We're talking about therapy, mm -hmm. your data therapy sessions. And I found this really, really interesting because um, as, a, as you want to go through therapy, you, you, there's somebody who's asking questions, right? They're trying to understand what is uh, the fear, the danger you have, right? To understand what actually needs to be solved. And I think that's one of the things that you want to go think about how to start is, hey, survival and danger are probably triggers and, and they're attention grabbers, right? They may break the ice. And then from there, you can transition into things that are going to be enhancements or enablements. So I think that that maybe it's uh, one of the things that you don't expect to kind of do initially is like, let me go talk about all your fears. But hey, mm -hmm. you figure out what you're fearing, right? That's going to be a way to start later on doing something kind of more in the positive. I think somebody wrote it already in the chat is, hey, one of the phrases we've said before is uh, brakes on the cars. They're right. Are they they're there to make you go slow? Right. Well, that's the fear part. Right. But hey, it's actually there to enable me to go faster, safely. Mm -hmm. That's well, enablement. A lot around, you know, risk and compliance is obviously regulations, but a lot of it is also emotions and concerns and fears and on, on all these things, right? And, 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 and in general, when people are involved and people are absolutely involved in data, we just talked about that for the last 20, min 20 minutes here, um, that you have to deal with people issues and people concerns. Um, and, you know, in that situation where you're dealing with all these concerns, who, who's the therapist? Is that, is that the data scientist? Is that the person, is that person the therapist? Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that, that's why we need to have this new role or, or the, these new skills around what we're calling a knowledge scientist, right? Mm -hmm. I think the knowledge scientist, this is kind of the person, the role, who's gonna be in the middle between the, the consumers, the, the subject matter experts and the producers, people who know the data, right? And they're the ones who are gonna go talk to people and can even do some sort of ethnographic studies, right? Apply techniques such as uh, card sorting, uh, run experiments and being quantitative and qualitative, right? I, I think there was one statistic that, that uh, Ashley said is that search satisfaction increases 40% if you actually talk to the end users and you ask how they feel, what they need, and their language and how their language is taken when you're starting to do modeling all the taxonomy work. So I think that is something really crucial to be able to go when you're starting is who is going to be the person or that role that's going to be talking to people. Mm -hmm. Is it the data scientist? I don't think so. Is it the data engineer? I don't think so. That's why we need to have this uh, this mm -hmm. uh, knowledge scientist. If you have an effective data team, somebody is playing this role. And if you're having, and if you have an ineffective data team, you should think about how can you bring somebody with these skills into your process because they they could have a big impact. And another aspect is again, how do we start in order to avoid boiling the ocean? Um, and one one technique she, that that Ashley mentioned was find the most important epics. 
So go go to your your Jira, uh, to know where, where, you're, where you're keeping track of epics, and just go find which is the most important one. And then literally there, ask what people need, what data do they need, and why do they need that. And I think with that, that helps you kind of figure out pri prioritize. Oh wait, this is an important thing, or some business reason, some customers asking for it, and they need this data for it. That's how I know I'm help prioritize. That's the way you can start and avoid boiling the ocean. Right. So. We get started and one of the things that we're always talking about data is we need to understand our data and we know that there's so many problems with data and we've had so many different episodes about quality and testing and provenance and so forth um one of our episodes that we had a kind of a, 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 a real in, in an industry a specific industry what was was with john looker and we talked about insurance data because it is an industry that lives on data and so talk about garbage in and garbage out, right? John was telling us about kind of a different um, products that they had been on and some surveys that they've done. He said, 44% of people said that their vehicle information was 100% wrong. That's ridiculous. That's dirty data. That's dirty data there. <laughs> and the issue is that it's not just about quality, it's not about just about observability of data, but it should really be about validation. And, and, and I think, how do we avoid having dirty data from the beginning is let's go validate and one is go validate. And second is let's avoid inputting data. Can we pre-fill data with something we already have before? Like that is something really, really important and kind of can help us avoid dealing with dirty data. Agreed. And I think one thing that was interesting from this conversation was this sort of confidence, uh, this concept around confidence level. And, you know, obviously, even in the insurance industry, you see, and, and you just heard that stat from Juan, that there's a lot of messy, dirty, complicated data. And then when you try to integrate it together, it even gets more confounded, right? But yet, insurance companies aren't all folding around us, right? That they're, they're functioning, right, to various levels, right? And some of them are excelling, right? And that's because you can make decisions on data even if it is dirty sometimes, right? So depending on your use case, quality is contextual. This is, and, and I think this is another, I don't know the phrase has come up a couple of times is uh, quality is in the eye of the beholder, mm -hmm. right? And it really depends on the use case that you have. If, what is a quality? So this is so, when I talk to people, it's like, oh, we need to have a green, a green, a yellow, a red, if it's gold data, I was like, mm -hmm. Wait, so you're gonna so we're gonna have a centralized team for data, but you want to go centralize the quality metrics, right? Is that yeah. you say everybody in the organization is gonna agree that green means this thing and yellow means this? I don't think so. And I think how do we know what that is? We need to go talk to the people who are consuming the data. Talk. Humans need to talk to each other. We can't automate all this stuff, right? This is why we need knowledge scientists. <laughs> it's a theme. It's a theme, as you'll see. So what next? What's next? We keep talking about testing data. We talk with- Yeah, that with, sounds like a good topic. We talk with Sam Bale about, do you test your data? So Tim, do you test your data? A little bit. Do we need to test our data? We should more. Okay. Everybody should more. There we go. Yeah, that's the thing. Everybody needs to be testing your data. And I think that's, uh, we do this for software. Why the heck don't we do this for data? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think one of the one of the interesting issues is like where do you test, right? Because you can start testing everywhere. So just recall that testing your data is not is not just about testing the data itself, right? Oh, here's the quality. This is the dates are normalized, or there's extra zeros or whatever. 
It's also testing the code that generates the data. Mm-hmm. And I think this is super, this is crucial. It's, there's two things here. It's the data itself and the, and the thing, the computation that generates it, both need to be tested. Mm-hmm. And when to start testing is when data moves across barriers, which is usually we're gonna have transformations. Mm-hmm. So test your data, but also but focus on where these where these boundaries are being crossed. I think that's interesting because a lot of folks, I think, tend to think of testing more as like at the end, like you, you know, you, oh, is this dashboard broken, or um, you know, oh, what are the nulls or you know percentage or accuracy percentage at the very end? But you know, you should think of it as like when the E happens, when the T happens, when the L happens, those are boundaries getting crossed, right? And can you test those things? I think one other thing that was interesting in our in our conversation with her, she talked a little bit about technology. And if you're fans of open source, she called out the DAG stack, D-A-G, which stood for DBT, Airflow, and Great Expectations. Great Expectations being an open source um, uh, tool around uh, quality. quality, around data quality, around data testing. Um, and so I, I thought that was cool and, and, and something that, uh, you know, for open source fans out there, I think is going to resonate. And, and how do we start? Again, think about the last time something broke and start there and then iterate from that. And I think another good piece of advice uh, that Sam said is the reason why you have domain experts on your staff is because they know better than you about that particular domain. So take advantage of those subject matter experts within your organization. So more on data and trust and stuff. We also talked to the folks from Monte Carlo data with we are Gavish about it, right? Because it's like, there's just so much stuff going around data quality and like, why is this cool again? Right. The kind of, I mean, there's been so many data quality tools, like forever, all the traditional old school tools are there. Like, why is this? It's kind of, you know, similar story to catalogs, right? There's, there was an old wave of catalogs and then the new wave of catalogs happened, right? There was this old wave of quality tools and now there's this new wave. And uh, well, I mean, obviously data testing is one topic, but they are really focused on data trust. Right. And do you have issues in, in being able to trust your data? And how do you trust your data? What are the factors that allow you to trust it? And so one of the things that he talked about is, you know, if the data is right, but the organization doesn't believe it, that's bad. So how do we make sure that data products are being sort of delivered with high reliability? Right. Reliability kind of being this idea of percentage of data downtime. And are you actually tracking your data downtime, right? Like how often are people not getting what they need out of data? And it's not just about the data set not being available. It's it's about it not being useful and applicable. And, and yet that's point because you can have something out there but people are not using it. Like you don't understand how people are using that. Mm-hmm. And you also, you also need to understand how people are consuming these trust signals. It goes back again, like, for, for one audience, for, for one use case, trust is different from something else, right? And this data has just so many dimensions in here that we need, to, we need to consider. And I think another thing that we talked about was threats. And, and almost you can consider data quality as being more like cybersecurity, right? If you need to, depending on your data, if it can have threats or not. So another aspect we talked about is pipelines. And this something is kind of worrying me a little bit that we'll talk to you a bit about the modern data stack, but is that we're now starting to go plug in a bunch of tools in different places and data's moving all over the place. Like there's a lot of places where things can break. There's a lot of pipelines and they're getting more and more complex, which means that we need to keep observing more and more. And honestly, I'm like, we're kind of democratizing and making all these tools self-service and why now maybe we're having too many of them. That we're just going to yeah. end up having not not data debt, 
not tech debt, but we have like pipeline debt. And I think something we're gonna talk about in a second too is like, we'll have integration debt. It's like, there's just more and more debt all over the place. And this is nevertheless, this is why we need to start thinking more about observation, observations about what's going on. I mean, the data sprawl is real, right? And it's really becoming hard to keep track of that all. And I think one last comment on Leora's talk is around trust is something that you gain. And I think that that's a hard concept because so much of what we've looked at as part of this series is sort of agility and resilience and like moving quickly and 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 spreading your bets and and don't boil the ocean, but you know do something that can be decentralized over time. And then there's this counterweight, this counterbalance, which is like if you but if you blow trust, you it's hard to regain that trust. And so there's a balance here of moving quickly agility, but then also moving carefully, right? And making sure that maybe, you know, back to that analogy about brakes, don't wait until the car crashes five times to put in the brakes. Maybe (laughs) you should put in the brakes at the beginning, right? Start simple, but put in the brakes at the beginning. Exactly. And just the way it applies in life, it applies in data too. Trust. And talking about trust, this is another topic about Providence, where does your data come from? And this is something we, a conversation we had with Professor Deborah McGinnis from RPI, who is a a, a world leading artificial intelligence researcher and Providence, what is Providence? Again, her honest, no BS answer. It's a who, what, where, when, why of your data. And when we say the proof is in the pudding, really the proof is in the Providence. So if we're thinking about, hey, where does this come from? Why don't trust this? Tell me more about this. It's providence. You need to keep track of your providence of where this is. All right, this is connected to data lineage. And the question is, well, I, I can keep track of everything. How much do I keep track of? Use cases. Like we need to, uh, yes, we can do everything. Storage is cheap. I can, I mean, you think about if I have X amount of data and when I have providence over my data, that can be much bigger than the amount of data that I have. Right. So how much should I sh- sh- store and track of providence? You could, you could go overboard on providence over- or, or on lineage, right? Which are obviously two closely related topics. And, and yeah, her point was that, you know, compute and storage is cheap, but be thoughtful, right? If you're, if your data is 99% provenance sort of exhaust and 1% real data, like maybe you've gone overboard a little bit, right? So be, be thoughtful about your approach to provenance, but at the same time, you know, you probably need to be doing more than you're doing today. Uh, because to the point that you just made earlier, we're, we're seeing so much data sprawl now, so much tool sprawl. Um, it's a concern. Yeah. You, have, you have to figure out how you track this stuff. And if there's an opportunity of, of, of not of doing more than just this thing was derived from this other thing, right? Derived from is that relationship between these two things, but you can be more specific about that. So this really depends on your domain and you can think about it. And and there are already standards for this stuff like uh, Provo, P-R-O-V, right. this is a standard for represent provenance. And these are things that we should be go thinking about and reusing. It's a very simple model that can be extended mm-hmm. about it. So, we're, so we're, much that we've yeah. done about trust and testing and provenance, but when you have all this stuff together, like we need to kind of put it in some sort of framework. And that's where data ops has come in. And that was- Data ops. And um, (laughs) this was a conversation we had with Chris Berg from Data Kitchen, who is also the author of the Data Ops Manifesto. And- Yeah, you gave us a little bit of a no BS kind of- His honest honest no BS definition, data ops is so I could have a sane life. Mm Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, you said that it was a misnomer, that it's kind of actually misstated because it's more about your code uh, acting on the data than it is about the data itself. This right? is, and this is fascinating <laughs> because we have different guests and we've had these conversations, different people 
come back to the same thing because we'll see it also with with the data mesh mm -hmm. conversation is that it's not about just the data it's about the code mm -hmm. right so we talk about the data science and we talk about computer sciences the algorithms the computation and the data we need to keep track about these two things this is really really important it's not just oh i need to make sure that this table that i have has all the right dimensions and so forth it's much more than that it's your code mm -hmm. it's your code and your data and you know, I, one of the things I really like about Chris and his message around data ops is he tries to keep it simple. And one of the things that really keeps it simple around is like, learn to love your errors and keep track of your errors, right? It, like, like, how do you get started with data ops, right? People are like, oh, I don't know. I got to learn about it. It's so complicated, like circles and infinity diagrams and stuff like that. It's like, no, no, no. Like, do, do you have problems? Okay. Do you keep track of your problems? Write them down. Yeah, write them down. And then, and then which ones are the worst problems? Okay, write a test. Yeah. And then repeat, and then repeat, and then repeat. And then talk to other people. Again, humans talking to humans, right? Mm -hmm. Hey, look, look at all these problems that have occurred. Can we improve them? Can we write tests? How do you actually start? Write a test and put it in GitHub. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be that sophisticated. Like you don't need to go buy a brand new tool, whatever, to go do data ops. You can just go write simple tests, Put in, document it somewhere, share it with other people, write tests, right. put in GitHub, go execute, automate as much as you can and take responsibility and ownership of it. I think this is gonna be another trend is we need to have ownership of the data. Who is responsible, who's accountable, who gets promoted because amazing things happen with the data and it's reliable, everybody loves it. Who's accountable for it if things don't go as well for them. Mm -hmm. We need to take responsibility for that. And that's something that goes beyond roles, right? We talk a lot about roles and a lot of people talk about roles, right? But whether it's the data product manager, it's the, you know, uh, the particular data producer, the data engineer, or the IT person who's in charge of that particular system, whoever it might be, think about the racy, you know, the responsibility, accountable, you know, et cetera, around your data and really who is responsible. And if it's unclear, there's a conversation that needs to happen, right? Who is responsible? So what's next? So we, we talked about kind of different, two different aspects about what's the future of data management. And one of them is about data centric. <clears throat> this was with Dave McComb from Semantic Arts. Mm -hmm. And data centric is something that we're seeing more and more. I love his books, The Software Wasteland. I, I always say this should be a mandatory reading by every data professional in the world. Software Wasteland, go read that book. And the next book is Data Centric Revolution. What is a data centric? Is you have a single, a simple, single, extensible data model within your organization. Something you can't buy, it requires discipline. Mm -hmm. But you need to start thinking about this mentality. And I think one of the stuff that I love about how Dave expresses that we talk about what is the problem. And, and, and this is what his book, Software Wasteland, goes into. It's like, look, every time you build or you buy something or you rent something, like in SaaS, which is what every company does today, you are buying another data model. There's something else that you have to go manage. You have to keep track of the, every single thing you go buy. There's more, there's an additional extra cost about that stuff that's gonna, which is connected to that data model. And why don't people get this stuff? Like this is, I mean, just think about how many applications are within your organizations. Every single one has a different data model. And that's why we're in this big data blah, mess yeah. that we're in. A lot of people don't think about this enough. And, and this has been a theme, especially re recently in our uh, episodes is this idea of models and being more thoughtful and thinking about 
models and how they come together. And I, when people do things like, oh, I've got my HubSpot and my Salesforce and my Zendesk and my this and my that and my this and the other, you've got all these different applications. Oftentimes you think of application infrastructure and data infrastructure as being separate from each other, right? But actually every single application you have is inherently part of your data infrastructure bringing its own model and then leading to the next topic, which is integration debt. Integration debt. We, we talk about data debt. We talk about technical debt, all that stuff, is, but it's all about integration debt. At the end of the day, the technical debt is like within your own apps, but the integration is what we don't recognize because it's all the stuff that's connecting all these apps together. And we just kind of think about it as, oh, it's just the software, but no, it's actually extra work that to go do and keep maintained in addition to all our data, just so our data can come together, mm -hmm. right? So what are the, how do we address this stuff is, well, knowledge graphs, right? This all comes in, this is about using semantics, but we have to use semantics wisely and be model driven everything, right? Try to have 90% plus of your code uh, with no application code. That is, that would be an ideal world. Right. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I generally believe that we can do that. It's just, we're just so tied in this software wasteland that it is, uh, it is very hard to get out of it. And it's this discipline and you need to have a commitment. You need to think about the world. And I said, I wanna be resilient for the next hundreds of years. And for any new startup, any new company coming out and they're just, they have the opportunity to start from scratch, please, please, please go read and go follow these data centric uh, kind of uh, principles because that is going to make yeah. your life and so much easier for the rest of your life. Oh, please, please yep. do that. We, we promise he's not uh, paying us any uh, um, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> affiliate fees no. or anything like that. He like these two books are really going to change your life and, and make you think about things differently. And it's bold, right? It's bold because it's it's saying, hey, we can take a different approach to this. Be model driven and be semantics driven. And how do you, how do you get started? Is think big and start small. And, and one thing I really love about what Dave said of what is data, digital transformation? It's a business taking the budget away from IT. Mm. So, hey, go pilot something, get some traction and show it. You need to show it, right? Go, go, go take a question that you know people are trying to go answer it. It takes too much time. You have to go to multiple systems and different spreadsheets. Go, go show that if I did this in this data centric approach where using knowledge graphs, for example, you can solve that immediately versus right. like your, your traditional old school approach. And, and don't just pilot the tech, pilot the value. Yes, value, the values. What does success mean connected to the, to the business at the end of the business? What makes me money? What saves you money? And then another big thing that's connected here is data mesh. Data mesh is this thing that I think I'm in a data mesh conversation twice a day. Right you, would you say you're a fan of data mesh? I am a fan of data mesh and I am a super fan of Shamak. She is awesome. She's Please, a really great speaker. She's a fantastic speaker. Uh, go, just go on YouTube, find any presentation. You will love how she presents things in a, such a clear, crisp and succinct manner. What is data mesh? It's not a thing. It's not just an architecture. You can't buy it. It's an approach based on decentralization. And honestly, it's, it's, it's this idea of a vision of how to, of a better, of an ideal, better future where you're breaking the problem into smaller pieces where your, your data moves to the source, mm -hmm. the people who actually understand a domain and they take ownership of that. That's really what it is. They're so the experts. They're right? the experts. They know that model for that application so or for I, that domain, right? I will call BS on any vendor saying that they sell a data mesh. If you see a vendor, see, if you see a vendor, that they're stating that they sell data mesh, that is BS.
What about data fabrics? Is that BS2? We can get into that one in a bit. <laughs> Check out that episode. Data fabric versus data mesh, but that's for another time. Yeah, so so many things that we think about about a, a data mesh. I think it's again it goes back into this balance of data centralization and, and, and decentralization. Um, and one of the things that I love uh, what Stramaka said was data has a heartbeat, mm -hmm. and I think this is something that we need to make sure that data is always alive. And how do how do we keep data alive? The code that generates that data, and we want to be able to have data product managers. We want to be able to have the the data is owned by the domain, mm -hmm. and basically you'll have all the tools are out there right now that you would need, right? You need catalogs, right? You need quality tools. You, need, you may need some federation uh, virtualization technology to go do this. At the end of the day, the technology is there. It's how you assemble it. It's more about that culture of how you want to go balance the centralization, decentralization. Right. And, and uh, you know, I like that she talked about data products. And one of the core things that I think she's still trying to define, because I think it's a hard question, right, is this idea of what should be included in the data product, right? And her kind of proposal is that it's it's not just the data itself, it's data plus the associated compute, the associated policy, and then actually the interface points, like how do you use it, right? Is it a streaming interface? Is it, a, is it something you can download? Is it something that is ETL and something else? I think that's very interesting. It's interesting to think about how our data stack and our data pipelines, you could actually draw circles around things, both at the compute and, and, and sort of data level, as well as the policy and process level. And those become the data products. And one of the things is that you want your data product to be awesome. And you want that to be balanced with incentives. Like the, your owners of your data they should get bonus to people like it if they use it if it's being connected with other things right they get the, the re, they, they get reviews and the feedback and they address those things like you should really think about uh, about bonusing people uh, on how to how and to make sure that they own a product that people love mm -hmm. and that should be this that that's that's the best type of data product out there so it's the final stretch we're getting there this is gonna be a long episode because all episodes are usually Started up being 30 minutes, not 40 minutes. It's going to be a long one, but it's been too much good, insightful stuff. So yeah, we, 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 we got to recap episode as a double header. Yeah. So, all right. Technology. Let's talk about technology. Now, we obviously have to talk about the modern data stack. Uh, and that's this a thing. is that, that, that's the thing. And we actually have recently had an episode with Brandon Chen from Fivetran and um, Honest No BS. What is the modern data? What makes a data stack modern? Marketing. Marketing? <laughs> well, one, no, just kidding. One thing it's cloud-based. One thing it has a nice fancy UI. But I mean, this was this was a decently honest no BS yeah, answer, I like the, which he was got to the core. Right? Got, it's like okay, it, it better make your life easier. Mm -hmm. And how does it make your life easier? Is that you're not installing it, right? That's for it's it's cloud-based, mm -hmm. right? You and if it's you're not, you want to be able to get to value faster. So kind of the litmus test is that it needs to be also self-service. Therefore, or self, as much as possible can be self-service. So the amount of consultants that you need to go kind of implement uh, uh, different technology stacks are going to reduce dramatically uh, to the point that they're not going to be consultants. They're actually going to be more advisors on how to go implement that stuff. And I think that's kind of the, that, that's how you realize that this is a modern data stack. Is right. The consultants turn into come advisors of how to go implement. Right, so you get this faster time to value on these different technology things. You get more self-service. 
And in general, um, usually in exchange for giving you more of an as a service model, as well as faster time to value, you may be giving up some features, right? You're, you're kind of, you're, you're doing an, a standardized approach, but you think about like, oh, interesting. There's an old school data quality solution or the modern data stack data quality solution. That modern data stack solution might be a little less expensive, might have, uh, you know, missing a couple of features, but overall it's faster to implement. It's as a service and maybe it's got some different features that are that are valuable and innovative in a different way. So you know that, that makes it interesting, and it's also a little subjective. Yeah, right? and I think the bar for what is modern is always going to is going to go is going to raise. So right. we'll we'll see how that changes. Companies so, that were modern today may not be modern, modern tomorrow. tomorrow. That's just the way it works, right? And one of the other things that I realize is that there's no modern modeling tool. I think that's a big fail. So an opportunity out there is to go. Who's the modern modeling tool we need to go do? And then one of the other big popular tools inside of the modern data stack is DBT. We had a great uh, opportunity to go chat with Drew Bannon from Fish Analytics from DBT to talk about what's this big rave about transformation stuff. And I really love that, hey, we just want to go empower people who know SQL and let them be self-service because these transformations are declarative. We'll just let them write them in SQL. And I think that that's where it, it, it's a very simple thing that we're now like, it's like, I can't believe it didn't happen before because you want things to be as declarative as possible. Right. And, you know, one of the things that I, I we, we actually got into it a little bit in our conversation with him was this idea that like, well, you know, there's all these no code tools and things like that trying to limit sort of the amount of that SQL shows up in our life. But maybe actually more people need to learn SQL. Right. Maybe that's actually a skill that needs to become more predominant. And every analyst who knows how to do a thing or two with Excel should be doing SQL. Right. And, and becoming what he called and what their company calls the analytics engineer. engineer. Right. Yeah, I think I think th this is a nice, an interesting overlap between analytics engineering and the knowledge scientists that we've been talking about. The analytics engineering are they know the domain very well. Right. And 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 they may not know SQL or they know a little bit of SQL. And that's enough for them to become an analytics engineer right, right. there. And they, they're both a translator as well as the person using DBT to be the transformer. Exactly. So right. they, they, they're not, they understand the domain and they can actually go implement those transformations to that domain. Right. Another part of the technology we've taught, talked a lot is about knowledge graphs. And we had a fantastic conversation with the, with the folks from Wonderman Thompson data that they're now called Choreograph, Michael Murray and Brett Harper, uh, the president and, and their CDO talking about identity graphs, knowledge graphs, kind of what's the next thing about customer 360. Mm -hmm. And in a nutshell, a knowledge graph is just a way to go integrate data and knowledge at scale, right? We're able to make connections between things. And in, in particular, this is not just the next chapter in data management. This is the really the next book on data management and it's data and knowledge management all connected together. And I think mm -hmm. that's the groundbreaking, the groundbreaking thing is that traditionally we always think about data, but we need to think about what is how, what are these data points and how they're connected and this connection, these relationships. This is what represents the knowledge within an organization right. that we need to be, we need to elevate to be first-class citizens. This is the way that you represent sort of that data-centric architecture and have an engine that kind of can power that. And I, I think that one of the things that was exciting about what he talked about is how the technology has been evolving a lot in the sort of knowledge graph space to become more accessible now to more companies such as their own. 
where, you know, now knowledge graphs aren't just the realm of sort of the fang companies, right? The sort of the Facebooks and the Netflix to do recommendations or something like that. It's something that can be very applicable and very valuable and, and drive outcomes in, you know, a much broader set of enterprises. And again, how do you start? Well, guess what? Don't boil the ocean. Mm -hmm. And how do you not boil the ocean? Well, let's go define what your KPIs, right? You want to design things to touch the market and how we're going to mobilize this. Be metrics driven. Focus on what is the relevant data and what is the most impactful data. And, and, and I think you want to be able to work with the right partner, somebody who's agile, not just a vendor, because at the end of the day, this is a marathon, not a sprint. And graph is not a panacea, right? It doesn't solve everything. Don't think like, I'm going to throw away all my relational stuff and move to graphs. That's not the answer. The answer is going to be a hybrid approach. Definitely. So talking about more technology, we got, we always, we, a lot of the focus for us has been about structured data, but we did have a fantastic conversation with Joe Hilger from Enterprise Knowledge talking about knowledge management, which has been associated more with unstructured data with how is that connected with structured data. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we started talking about NLP, right? How do we get structure out of the unstructured sources? Talking about taxonomies, how as a, as a, as a first starting point to connect the world of the unstructured folks with the structured folks, because, hey, we need to start talking about the same words, like we're, it's our business glossary, what's our taxonomy? This is a way for us to start kind of bridging these two communities mm -hmm. that they don't talk to each other and they should be talking to each other the value of the ontologists, right? And, and, and some people maybe who are saying they're ontologists, but, but they aren't, right? But they're valuable, right? Ontologists can be very valuable to your organization. And, and, and I think one of the important stuff is that a lot of the, the work that people do for unstructured and taxonomies has been for doing search. And you can bring that same type of approach of taxonomies and ontologies to, un, to structure data and have that same type of search within the data, right? So I think mm -hmm. we, we look at what Google does for, for Google search and they provide you answers using their knowledge graph. You can do that same thing with your structured data by bringing these same, the same concepts that have been applied for unstructured data. So there's so much to be done within these two communities that need to be integrated. Yeah, those two things have to be bridged together, the content world and the data world. Um, the structured side and the unstructured side, they need to work together. Um, and you want to be able to um, use things like NLP, natural language query, and other side types of technologies on both. Uh, and it can all work together. And one thing that we talked about is where, where does this work live in which department, right? Is it, mm. is it a CA, the CDO office? Is there a new chief knowledge office or whatever? But he's like, remember, there is already a CIO and it's uh, not, and that I does not mean infrastructure. It really means information. Mm -hmm. So we should kind of, we're already, an infrastructure shouldn't be a big thing. We should be focusing on information and combining our, our unstructured, our structured, our knowledge and data together. That's what the CIO should be focusing on. That's a call to action. If you're a CIO or you know one, right? You're not the chief infrastructure officer. You should be the chief information officer. Mm -hmm. And that, that office is going to evolve as things move to the cloud, they move to SaaS, it's gonna come back to knowledge. Now, final part on, on technology is talked a lot about <clears throat> business intelligence. And we kind of the first episode of the year was with Peter Bayless from CSU Data mm -hmm. and talking about, hey, what's next for business intelligence? And our latest episode was with Ashley Kramer, the chief product officer of SciSense, again, about the future of BI. Um, one of the things that happens is that we, we you only ask why when something bad happens and then it's too late. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things that I remember Peter was saying is that the future here is, 
about AI, of, of business intelligence and being combined with machine learning is about really being predictive. It's like, don't tell me what happened yesterday, what I know. You need to figure out what's coming up next. I think that's one of the most important things. And second is we need to be able to connect everything with KPIs and measurements, right? This is something that was a nice, I mean, we had these conversations at the beginning of the year and just now at the end of the year, and they really align about that. So for example, uh, Ashley was saying, we really need to be able to put a number to it, right? We always talk about how not to boil the ocean is go pick a use case, right? Again, boiling the ocean, boiling the ocean, don't, don't boil the ocean, don't boil the ocean. Pick a use case, okay, pick a use case, use case, use case, but actually put a number to it. Let's go quantify it, put a KPI. And what is a number? And this is obviously hard to go do, but an example she said was, let's go eliminate headcount, right? If I been able to go do this and eliminate- Or repurpose headcount. Eliminate the headcounts and go repurpose it. Yes, <laughs> yes. thank you for that clarification. Yes. Yeah, no, I think that's a big deal there in terms of getting quantitative. And, and as one final point here, it's that, even though you know Peter and Ashley had slightly different perspectives, just different angles on sort of AI and what sort of things AI was going to be doing, they both shared a very similar vision, which is that you shouldn't have any idea that you're using analytics. That the user experience around analytics and around BI is going to continue to become more and more just insights. The insights come to you; they show up, and you can find them seamlessly. Um, and, and that's going to be a really good thing. And it's going to continue to bring data more and more to every single person in the organization. This whole trend towards democratization is not a fluke. It's not a sort of just something that's, uh, you know, uh, a fad, right? It's something that's here for real. And it's going to be hard because it's going to really put a lot of stress on knowledge management, on governance, but it's the right place to go. Woo! That so. was... Five, six months of conversation right there. That's a lot of insights right there. <laughs> so what did we take away from all these takeaways? A takeaway of the takeaways. The takeaway, the, the T, 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 T. So okay. kind of like, what's our vision? What's our vision? This, what's right? our vision? So I, I feel I'm in such a lucky position to get with you, Tim, is that having all these conversations has really helped us form how we think the future of enterprise data and knowledge management needs to needs to evolve. And I think that's something I'm gonna start saying now. It's not just about data management, it's about data and knowledge management mm -hmm. going together. And I'm gonna put them in three in, in, in three things. So this is how I'm seeing the world. One, we need to have a balance of being decentralized and centralized. And the way to go achieve this is you want to you want to have a centralized core of excellence of your data and knowledge. They're the, they're, that is the group who is going to define the core data models, right? Remember what data centric, this very simple, extensible data model, simple, extensible data model. That is the stuff that within an organization, if you're in an e-commerce company, it's orders, products, customers, order lines. It's very simple. That should be managed by the core center of excellence. And then you let every domain, the sales department, the marketing department, the shipping department, the finance department, let them go do extend that stuff because they're the experts of the domain and each domain will have their own data team, right? Now, this is an organization. You can have data teams that can be shared across. That's well, you'll, that's the balance between centralization and decentralization. And I think part of that is that you want to be able to have, what is a team? You need to have data product managers. You need to have knowledge scientists. Your data team will have data engineers. will have data scientists themselves too. It's a combination of folks who are going to be within your domain. They're going to understand that business and then you're going to have liaisons between the centralized 
and the decentralized hubs. And the centralized hubs, those liaisons are gonna understand what's going on across the different hubs. Where's the friction going on? So we can go keep track of how the feedback is going around. And, Interesting. And, and, and part of that also is that this gives the opportunity within the organization is to have members of your teams go jump between different domains. And that enables people get excited because I don't want to live, I want to learn, I want to learn about other stuff. And this is great. So if, hey, you're, you're, you're the knowledge scientist working in the marketing domain and now you just moved to the sales domain, the sales domain folks are going to be excited because, hey, we're bringing somebody who's going to be in our team who knows more about this other department that we don't talk to that we should talk to more. You can cross-pollinate the expertise. Cross-pollinate right? expertise, exactly. So that's the balance. You understand this balance between centralization and decentralization. So well, I think- What about tools and tech? How does that fit in? So I think we always talk, so if we're decentralized, you need to start connecting things together. We talk about connections, we're talking about a graph. And we're talking about connecting data and knowledge together. This is where the knowledge graph comes in. So at the end of the day, I think one of the fundamental technologies to go combine data and metadata and knowledge and ontologies and taxonomies and, and all your schemas and all that stuff, knowledge graphs. We always, I always say that your first knowledge graph should be of your data catalog, right? It's what are the tables, the databases, the columns, the stewards, right? The, the, the business, the terms, how are all these things connected? That's your first graph of knowledge right there. I think the knowledge graph will be a completely centerpiece of technology around that. And then finally, this is kind of the spirit of the data mesh is we need to treat data as a product. We, every single domain needs to be in charge of delivering those data products, understand who are the consumers of those data products and be responsible to taking those requirements. Just like when you go shop things on, on, on Amazon or whatever, people can give reviews and give feedback. Well, somebody needs to be there answering that feedback, cataloging all that stuff, making sure that we, the next version of the data, we respond to that. If there's, if there's urgency, we can go solve problems immediately. And I think we're actually going to have two, there's two types of data. There's your raw data, and then there's your data products. Your raw data has an audience, your data producers, like your data engineers, right? Your data, your data stewards, and they're going to actually have a catalog of the raw data. But then the product team, the data team, they're the ones who can understand the, 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 the requirements to transform that into data products. And those and the audience of those data products are going to be your consumers, your data analysts, your data scientists, and so forth. They're going to have another catalog. There's no need for a data analyst or business user to go use the catalog of the raw data. They want to understand it. They want to go use the catalog to go discover those data products. And I think there's a phrase that somebody that came up once is, a data consumer to a data product manager will say, is your data fit for my purpose? The data product manager will say back to that data consumer is, is your purpose fit for my data? And I think that's important balance that we need to go have. That's, a, that's my takeaways of the takeaways of the last four or five months, last 50 episodes. So balance decentralization and centralization, essentially achieve sort of that data mesh vision. That's right for you, for your scale of organization, right? leverage knowledge graph in some way, whether it's just starting with your catalog or it's something bigger as you go forward, right? And then third, data products become the center. Somebody has to play this role of data product manager. And you know, part of what they're doing is maybe Marie condoing the junk and, and turning it into something that can spark joy. And, and then they're producing these, these products that can, can be fit for certain purposes. And, and if the purpose isn't a fit, then you figure out the right approach to, to make those people be able to get their use case done, right? Exactly. It's a recipe. Well, Tim, this is it. 50 episodes in. 
50 episodes. We can't wait to, you know, launch our season two uh, in a little bit here. But you know what? Honestly, we're going to take a little break. We'll take a little break. Yeah, we will have a brain a, vacation. We will have uh, some surprises going on for the next two months. And the beginning of August, we will be back. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for being loyal listeners and live attendants. Uh, this is a uh, never in my life I thought I was going to become a podcaster yeah man. <laughs> here it's, we are it, it's happened and please don't leave us alone over the next couple of months here ping us on twitter at tim gasper at juan cicada uh, you can also find us on email on tim.gasper at data.world i'm juan at data.world and you can let's keep the conversation going. going who should we be inviting who should we be talking to what topics do you want to see let's do that Remember, cataloging cocktails, an honest, no BS, non-salesy conversation about enterprise data and knowledge management. Thank you. Cheers, everyone.